You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're having a conversation about uh, Latin American Protestant Christology, uh, but also around just contextual theology and how we understand that and what um, what integral mission is and what that means and uh, this kind of idea of holistic mission. And we were talking with Dr. Jules Martinez-Oliveri, who is uh, teaches theology and ministry at North Park Theological Seminary. He's an ordained pastor. He teaches at the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico and various seminaries in North America. He loves basketball and chess. We didn't really mm. talk about either of those, but, you know, if you wanted to know, right. uh, that's what we that's what we talked about. Yeah, Jules was fantastic. He unpacked uh, for us both like the definition or the understanding of liberation theology, but then also the historical and contextual reality of which it rose Mm -hmm. out of. And so it was, yeah, it was great. I really appreciated his nuanced understanding and uh, and also the practical uh, application for for his theology. He's he's worked. Um, in Puerto Rico with uh, churches there and helped uh, orchestrate disaster relief Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2017 when a hurricane struck and he shared a little bit about that at the end as well. Mm -hmm. Jules even said at the end of our conversation that this was maybe one of, like that he was even having fun in the conversation with us. Mm. So, you know, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jules Martinez-Oliveri. Welcome to the Regent College Podcast. I'm glad to be here. We're, we're excited as well about you actually coming to Regent College, not just to the podcast. So that's mm-hmm. very exciting that you'll be here with us in the summer. Um, and so we want to talk a little bit with you about Latin, Latin, Protestant, Christology, as well as a bunch of other things. But um, okay. do, you want to, do you want to talk to us a little bit? How did you become interested in this topic? And then how would you kind of articulate Latin, Protestant, Christology just as a sort of a definition? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and uh, Puerto Rico is part of the Caribbean, uh, and it shares the heritage of Latin American uh, uh, Roman Catholicism. So in our music, in our iconography, uh, in our art, everything is filled with religious images, Mm. uh, particularly Jesus. Jesus as the baby, or Jesus the man or the suffering man or Jesus in the arms of Mary. So you had all these images of Jesus. Um, and when the Protestant uh, movement came to Puerto Rico, for example, in 1898, uh, they introduced more like not Jesus, the suffering one in the cross. They, they introduced Jesus, the victorious one, the one that is coming in glory. Mm-hmm. So you have all these cultural images of Jesus. Uh, some uh, theologians call it the faces of, of Christ in Latin mm-hmm. America that um, I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in a family that practiced uh, Roman Catholicism as a faith. Um, then eventually came a little bit more like a cultural practice. We would go to mass. Uh, I did, you know, my first communion and everything. I thought at one moment that I was going to become a Catholic priest. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, <laughs> but I eventually did become a, a pastor, a Protestant evangelical pastor. Um, so when I was kind of a, a beginning in the faith, uh, and beginning to serve, I served uh, amongst um, immigrant congregations, uh, for example, in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was dealing with the realities of 
of immigration, displacement, first and second, second generation issues that uh, drove me to ask the question, okay, so, so if the gospel is about salvation, then what is it about the gospel that is actually good news to my people mm. that I'm serving in the midst mm -hmm. of all this suffering and uh, living in liminal in-between spaces, in-between cultures? Uh, so I began to read more about uh, how Protestants in Latin America conceived of salvation. Mm -hmm. Now, it is important mm -hmm. to say that I did that because before the heritage that I had was more from the holiness movements in North America. Right. That came to Puerto mm -hmm. Rico, like the Christian Missionary Alliance uh -huh. uh, that is in the U.S. And, and also in Canada, et cetera. But uh, I wasn't exposed to Latin American mm -hmm. theology. So when I was a, a graduate mm -hmm. student and serving in, in pastoral roles, I began to read about uh, how uh, the focus in Latin America uh, is not only how Jesus saves us after death. Mm -hmm. uh, the question, is there life after death, but is there life before death? Mm. So um, mm. the historical Jesus, uh, we need to take Jesus seriously. That is his actions, his choices as evidences of what salvation looked like. Mm -hmm. So there's this public dimension of salvation that I saw that it was highlighted. It wasn't only about uh, the person being forgiven from the inside, right? From the deadness of sin, return to life, what we call regeneration, right? But it was about what happened from what kind of public evils are we, are we being liberated from? Mm -hmm. So that was my my jumping into the pool of Latin American Protestant Christology, where there is a focus on the history and the actions of Jesus moving then into the transcendent dimensions of the person and the work of the Messiah. Mm. So I found that emphasis yeah. on, on the public dimension right. of, of, of a Christian dogma, of, yeah. Christian, uh, of the foundations of the Christian faith, focusing on Jesus, as the one who is passionately for us and the one who is uh, gloriously coming too. So mm. uh, he shares our suffering deeply um, and then he is guaranteeing a victory. I think I saw that attraction. And when I was a graduate student uh, in Illinois, I was like, well, I think I was missing this. I'm missing mm. my own people. I didn't grow mm. up knowing what was happening in Colombia and in Peru and in Guatemala and, uh, and in Brazil and in other places where political turmoil and uh, wars and corruption and poverty were the order of the day. Yeah. So I saw that hope. That, 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 that's, that was my initiation mm. right. into, totally. into Protestant Christology wow. in Latin America. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah I'm, and I mean, with that, so I think what maybe you're touching on is our, the understanding of liberation theology. Is that is that a, is that a piece of it? And I'd love for you to articulate a little bit more because what I hear you saying is you were first exposed more to the North American, maybe more like that individualistic understanding of salvation, regeneration, Christ regenerates us and saves us, our persons individually. But liberation theology and maybe this is what I hear you saying, is more of a communal act, 
more of a corporate act in that he not just liberates the individual, but actually whole people groups and cultures and societies out of oppressiveness or injustice or systematic uh, sins, basically. Is that is that a good synopsis of liberation theory? And what else, I guess, what else would you say to uh, art, define it, articulate it? Yes, yeah, so uh, this is one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of theology in Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, liberation theology emerged as a movement uh, in the 19, late 1960s uh, within Roman Catholic quarters in great gatherings of bishops as they were trying to understand why and how should we serve Latin America, a country that was so ridden with poverty, impoverishment, and suffering. And Gustavo Gutierrez was one of the originators or fathers of uh, liberation theology, tried to refocus Christian theology to say that every dogmatic location, every Christian doctrine should be expressed in its liberating impact. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, one of the way in which one of the ways in which uh, um, theology in the United States and Canada uh, focused their attention on engaging culture was the fights with liberalism. Uh, you find evangelicals, liberal, the liberals, the evangelicals, the fundamentalists. Just and, fight everyone. Uh, and uh, it, it is like, let's just fight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, one of the main foes was uh, atheism. Mm. So you have to develop an apologetic to try to justify rationally the Christian claims. Uh, mm. But mm. in the majority world, Latin America, the continent of Africa, many parts of Asia, uh, even in the Middle East, the main question is not whether God exists. Yeah, that, that right. that's it's not even a, it's not even an issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. The question is what kind of God exists right. in light of the angst, the existential angst of so many uh, people in the world, mm -hmm. uh, the impoverished masses. Gustavo Gutierrez, I remember that he said that the challenge in Latin America doesn't come from the non-believer. It comes from the person who is treated like a non-human. Mm. Saying uh, mm. the one who is not recognized as fully human by the ruling social order, the people who are exploited. Mm. So think about liberation theology as a qualifier. It's a way of doing theology in which all the liberating force of Christian doctrine is put in the forefront of Christian discourse, mm -hmm. so that when we think about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the spirit, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of creation, you are looking to see how God is acted, acting through creation, mm -hmm. through God himself, through Jesus, through the spirit, to liberate humanity from all kinds of oppressions. Now, contempor in contemporary thought, now we have... Uh, uh, we have the, the thing that liberation refers to a whole range of explicitly contextual theologies that focus their attention in trying to, to say, okay, here's the world, here's the church, here's scripture. How do we triangulate mm. these, these fronts 
to address issues of oppression and violence and war and discrimination and sexism and uh, uh, racism or sexual violence, you name it. Mm-hmm. So when they use the, the adjectival construction and liberation theology, they're saying we are paying attention, focusing in one dimension. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, uh, there are many ways in which scripture speaks about salvation. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, somebody might ask, well, why don't we just keep speaking about salvation? We said, well, salvation is a great word, but it encompasses so much uh, mm-hmm. that we probably need to be more specific. Mm-hmm. So usually when people uh, in the industrialized West that is has been so Christianized, think about salvation, they're thinking afterlife. Mm-hmm. But when in Latin America, we use the word liberation, we're thinking about the historical in the now experience of what God is doing in the world to reconcile all things. Mm-hmm. So God is liberating me from my eternal sin, mm. my internal dispositions to rejecting God and neighbor and creation. But it's, but also there is an expectation that God will liberate me from public evils. Mm. Uh, now, that might not be a liberation from every public evil, mm. but it's certainly an expectation. Mm-hmm. After all, this is what Jesus did. Jesus not only uh, forgave sins, he provided healings that in immediately affirmed the image of God in someone who was immediately relocated within the value of the community. And that right. person's life changed mm, right. socially, politically. Yeah. Um, so liberation theology tries to attend to those matters explicitly mm-hmm. and without excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so good. And now, so Jules, you're coming to teach systematic theology at Regent. And so what I think what I'm hearing you saying is it's not like liberation theology is this like little like, you know, subset of mm. of theology, but actually it's a systematic way to look at all the things, that, all the kind of categories of theology, Christology, right. pneumatology, you know, ecclesiology. All that. But it's, so it's actually, it is, it is almost a systematic way to look at those kind of doctrines. Is, am I, is that right? Yes, yes. So, so we say that this is not only another theology of the genitive. Yeah. Uh, like, it's not mm. that we're developing a theology of creation. Is that mm. everything is, for example, everything can be seen in light right. of the created uh, creaturely order. Mm-hmm. So, uh, liberation theology is saying, no, everything needs to be deployed in light of God's liberating acts mm-hmm. seen through the whole of Scripture, and how Christian theology can organize all its categories to attend to yeah. li- the liberating experience of God mm-hmm. in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, now, so, you know, Western Christians, I think, I, I don't know who else is apprehensive about it, but definitely the the Westerners are, um, yeah. are kind of apprehensive about liberation theology. Why? Yeah. Wh- why is that? And what would, like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So especially in the industrialized West. Yeah. Um, so we... We, we find that because the emergence of liberation theology was during the Cold War, um, mm-hmm. um, we find that the discourses of the Cold War uh, against, it was capitalism versus the communist, mm-hmm. uh, liberal society versus the totalitarian Marxist. Um, we find that the discourses of the North, um, the Northern latitudes, uh, and their battles against Russia and the Cold War and all that tension uh, began to creep into the experience of how 
theologians in Latin America and also in the United States, represented by Black theology and James Cone, for example, mm-hmm. um, were doing their theology. Now, let me just say, so it is often accused, uh, you have the charge that liberation theology, you need to be careful because it's Marxist, it's communist. Mm. Uh, we need to be careful with that kind of claim because what mm. was happening was that liberation theologians were resorting to use sociological analysis in order to understand the material reality in which people are living. Now, theologians mm. have used philosophy for, yeah, you know, right. for 2000 years yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to what? To, to use uh, right. categories, categories that make sense that would allow of, us to yeah. make sense of the mm-hmm. faith, non-contradiction, elucidation, mm-hmm. logic, and things like that. But in the 1970s, liberation theologians, both Protestant, I mean, both majority ca- Roman Catholic and Protestants in Latin America, they started to use Marxist analysis, economic analysis, in regards to why the type of capitalism that was developed in Latin America was creating uh, some of the most uh, gigantic, dis- gigantic disparities between the rich and the poor. Mm. Uh, so they found it helpful to the extent that it helped them theorize about what's going on here. And, and at that point, you had the uh, what they construe as the empire in the Americas, uh, the United States, uh, establishing profound relationships of codependency with many uh, emerging Mm. um, Latin American republics. Loans were given in exchange of Mm. favors. Uh, Armies were sent. Dictators were were put down. Others were put up. And uh, the Panama Canal, it it was, you have international uh, incidents. And so what you have are theologians, pastors, people from the ground up who are seeing the immense poverty. And they're saying, we need another tool of analysis because Mm. many of our elite people are telling us that this kind of capitalism is fine. Right. So when Mm. theologians and pastors who are of an evangelical conservative fundamentalist bent in the United States saw that they were being criticized by their commitment to a certain kind of capitalism using Marxist categories, they were like, oh, the commies are coming, <laughs> communist, you are Russian. Right. And these people, they were not. Yeah. Now, now mm. of course, you might find some, some theologians that, that they were like, yes, you know, communism, mm. whatever. But the majority of them, like the fathers, like uh, you have, you have uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and John Sobrinos, what they were trying to do is to understand the reality. Mm-hmm. They themselves say that they were not subjected to some of the presuppositions of the early Marxist analysis, uh, which discounted religion as the opium of the masses and things like that, mm-hmm. because they themselves were deeply religious people. Mm-hmm. And some of them were even martyred uh, mm-hmm. as they were trying to protect and, 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 and defend the poor. Mm-hmm. Now, so when you find those battles in the Cold War, you import it to everything that says liberation theology. Oh, you have a great boogeyman right there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, So the Roman Catholic Church uh, started disciplining and trying to silencing some of its own liberation theologians like uh, Leonardo Bob, the Brazilian, uh, because they were anti-institutional. And if you're anti-institutional, 
you are anti-church, if you're anti-church, and the church is the sign of salvation, then it must be because you're outside the church. Mm-hmm. So, so you had all these battles mm-hmm. of, in some instances, profound misunderstanding. Yeah. In others, it was about the power to say who has the right Christian theology. Right. So it, these are sad battles. Yeah. I see them as yeah. sad battles of miscommunication, of, of reading the worst of intentions on the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that has emerged out of this is that today, uh, what was happening in the 70s and 80s uh, in Latin America, in the United States, in certain parts, for example, in uh, South Africa, um, in India, with the rise of uh, the theology of the Dalits, the mm. untouchables, mm. was that the very intuitions of liberation theology, that salvation is both spiritual and material, mm-hmm. spread enough so that today, we try to almost not make that kind of bifurcation. We're like, yes, of course, God right. cares about everything. Mm-hmm. In some circles today, we are like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the contributions. Even if you don't identify as a liberation theologian, hopefully we can say that our theology is liberating. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I mean, it seems like it's important in, in what you were all describing there is to understand history and to be yes. able to articulate history correctly mm. because theology, I mean, while it may have been there underlying like liberation theology and the connection between the spiritual material, it does fit partly into a context as well, like a contextual theology within history and how, I mean, that's, that just seems like so significant that we, we oftentimes miss because in, in a lot of ways, you're right, like liberation theology, or if not called liberation theology, that connection is predominant, but it wasn't always the case. Is that kind of what you're saying is maybe it wasn't always articulated as a case, but arose in Latin America, in these other other areas where um, the poor were being oppressed, where there was kind of this injustice of rich and poor, um, that Jesus comes to liberate those pieces. Yes, and it's interesting that that uh, the, those intuitions of recovering the materiality of salvation uh, was hap- it was happening in different parts of the world. Like I mm-hmm. said, you know, with black theology in the context of segregation and Jim Crow laws in the United States and that uh, horrific heritage, and in Latin America also with the struggles of masses of impoverishment and corruption. Uh, so yes, we need to learn history. You know, learning history is important to theology in the same way that learning about one's family background help mm. us in explain why mm. are we here, why are we are the way we are. If you go to therapy, which I I, I recommend everybody to go to therapy, <laughs> I have my I have my own therapy. Totally. Uh, all of a sudden, you're like, oh wait. Oh, yeah. yeah, I do that because my dad or my grandfather, oh, yeah, that's in my family, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. But learning history would um, would allow us to see that uh, the Christian faith is broad, big, diverse, and uh, we are not reinventing the wheel. Things mm-hmm. that we live now uh, are even affirmed. They were affirmed and lived in other places, but we use different kinds of language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, it is so important that we know about our traditions. Uh, tradition can have two meanings. So, so it can be that which is handed down from other people, knowledge, customs, liturgies modes of being uh um 
or it can also mean the how how the history of Christian thought has evidence of thinking about things in all sorts of different ways mm-hmm. in different parts of the world. So no Christian organization, no church exists without tradition. Mm-hmm, right. Even people that say, I just I just pay attention not to, to the traditions of right. man, but only to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the tradition that says that mm-hmm. they don't pay attention to the traditions of man. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <totally. laughs> um, but uh, tradition uh, informed us so that we don't repeat the same mistakes, right. inform us that the Holy Spirit has never been without a witness in mm. reforming and redirecting the church in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also keep us humble. Uh, there are so many innumerable men and women saints of the past mm. that we should look up to uh, mm-hmm. and not totally. be like, you know, don't adopt that chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis talked about. Yeah. That somehow because we're modern, we know more, we know better. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that we are more moral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully we learn. Yeah. So, yes. Now, it, another aspect of this is that when you know history, you know that uh, theological conversations in our churches, in our denominations, in the way that we think this is important, this is not, it reflects the concerns of our context, mm-hmm. of my country, of my family, of my church tradition, etc. It, it is embedded in human relationships that are located. Right. Mm-hmm. There are certain politics, certain sociologies. Uh, you are doing, uh, um, we're doing church as something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, that embeddedness in history is part of being creatures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so every, every time that we do theology, uh, every time that we try to articulate what, what God has revealed about God's self and all things related to God, we do so from a place mm-hmm. um and to say that theology is contextual is to say that theology will always reveal the concerns of the church in a particular point in time mm-hmm. uh, now some people will say ah but but that sounds like if theology is contextual that means that it's just for today mm-hmm. and and uh maybe how can we say that uh jesus lives or jesus is lord is contextual only isn't that negating the, the transcendent, mm-hmm. the transcendence of the claim? Mm-hmm. Is it no, because we don't have to think in binary terms. It's both. Yeah. Jesus yeah. is Lord make total sense to the first Christians. Um, it was a uh, theological, political, sociological, and religious declaration at all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it was a transcendent declaration. Mm-hmm. But we know that unique context to understand Jesus is Lord because it's not the same. And Paul says, Jesus is Lord, or when the conquistadors in the Americas said, Jesus right. is Lord, mm-hmm. because they were carrying the sword right. and the cross. So, so we need history, and we need yeah. to be proud of our creatureliness. Mm-hmm. And we need to say, we're doing contextual theology. Mm-hmm. We're looking around, we're looking for the discernment of the Spirit, and we're trying to say, how, how do, do the great truths of the Christian faith apply now, here, mm-hmm. today, to mm-hmm. us? Mm-hmm. Hey, and to the extent that it applies to us in a certain situation, I can look to other parts of the world that are going through similar situations and say, hey, this is relevant for you too. Mm-hmm. 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 And yeah. vice versa. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so it's so interesting. The, the, the conversations around we have lots of conversations around contextual theology and you know African theology and Latin American theology, and so part of me is like, okay, we sh- maybe and then and then we then sometimes we talk about just theology, you know, which is Western theology or German theology or whatever. So do you think we should have the qualifiers for all of it, or should we call it theologies? Like, how do we? Because otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you kind of got like theology. And then you've got Latin American theology, African theology, you know, and it's like that doesn't make that doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if, if all theology is contextual, so so I'm kind of like maybe it should just all be theology. But now I'm like, actually no, maybe it should be everyone should be more passed out as their contextual. I don't know. What do you think about that in terms of how we yeah, talk about these things? Yeah, it's tricky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, we don't want to be so atomistic, right? Mm. That that then everything needs a qualifier. And yeah. hey, qualifiers are good. We, yeah. we need to be nuanced. Um, I remember that one time I somebody asked me, so so in your first book, A Visible Witness, you, you do liberation theology, you do Protestant theology, you do Trinitarian theology uh, in, in a Latin American key, but but do you do theology theology? Like like right. theology? <laughs> right, totally. It's like, yes. And, and I'm like, you mean like theology from nowhere? Yeah, yeah right. Totally, right. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I usually, what, what I use for practical reasons, I just, yeah. I usually say, well, you know, I'm a Christian theology. I do, I, this is what I do. And uh, I, I love to focus on the doctrine of Christ. And to the extent that the person asks more specific questions and I say, well, you know, my, the angle that I, with which I approach this and my concerns are mediated through this theological tradition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, so I call it, you know, Latin American Protestant Christology. Yeah. Uh, now, if I wanted to be wider, you know, one way of also, when, when, I, when I talk about Christian theology, um, I'm usually thinking about those shared confessions mm-hmm. that are organic to all the Christian traditions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. thinking about orthodoxy. I'm thinking about the Council of Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed, the Council of Nicaea, Constantinople, you know, Ephesus, I'm thinking about Chalcedonian. Um, but even there, you know, you, you have, for example, the the Coptic church mm-hmm. in Egypt who, mm-hmm. who never agreed with the Council of Chalcedonia because right. mm-hmm. there's profound linguistic concerns and misunderstandings, multicultural misunderstandings. Uh, but um, I, I refer to Christian theology for practical purposes in my classes. And I'm thinking, think orthodoxy, think the Council of Nicaea, mm-hmm. um, think, think the Apostles' Creed as a kind of a, shared confession from the majority of the Christian traditions. Right. Um, but even then, of course, that is still a contextual theology. Mm-hmm. So it was a very Definitely. important contextual theology. You're talking about, you know, the fourth century and the battles mm. uh, for uh, the identity and the personhood of Jesus in relationship mm. to the father. And uh, was Jesus like inferior to the father? Was he's like a, like a, like a mini demigod, like a Hercules, or was Jesus like sharing whatever the father is, Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had all these battles, even in the council of Nicaea. Yeah. Uh, but, and yet uh, the majority of Christian traditions will say uh, the council of Nicaea is what we share. We, we mm-hmm. at least have to say something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, or the Apostles' Creed, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to the extent that I get specific on applications, I will say, well, yeah, my my applications are not transcultural. Mm-hmm. I believe that the Word of God is transcultural; it is relevant uh, across cultures. 
mm-hmm. but it's not equally relevant in the sense that different mm-hmm. cultures have different situations. Right. Uh, yeah. So for so so for example, I have a, a, I have friends from the underground church in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a medical doctor and then we were doing phd studies together he was an old testament he was becoming an old testament scholar and uh, every time that we studied the the book of revelation uh and the images of dragons he was like you know in the west you know uh dragons are in movies in hollywood Mm. you have these beasts you know fire from the mouth and people have them have this imaginary about dragons as threats but in China, dragons are protectors. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that gag reflex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we read Revelation, it's something else for us. Mm-hmm. What we read is the one who, who, who's supposed to be a kind of uh, ancestral protector has become a distorted beast. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is the unordering of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so you see, it's equally relevant, it's uh-huh. relevant transculturally, but the way in which we see even application scriptures is different. Yeah, so uh, that's that's really helpful because, I mean, we've come across this question multiple times, um, what Claire was kind of uh, addressing. But I feel like what you're kind of saying is when there's an element of cross-cultural understanding it might be important to have a more nuanced say, this is where I'm coming from in my, from my context, um, specifically with your example in China, or if you're coming from Latin America, if it's cross-cultural, it might be helpful to have like uh, a kind of preface per se. So it might be helpful to have a book that's, that's Latin American theology if it's coming from cross-cultural, but equally it might be helpful to have a preference that says like uh, North American or Western theology, if it's going cross-cultural also, Mm -hmm. um, so as not to create like this flat line of like, oh, it's all the same. Yeah. Right. Because it's not, I mean, I think, I think what your point is there's, there's, we come from a certain context and depending on that context, our reading of scripture may, may be nuanced and somewhat Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we yeah. were talking about that. I was just talking, one of our New Testament scholars here was talking about how he was teaching um, New Testament foundations and they're talking about food sacrifice to idols. You know, and Westerners are like, ah, oh, food sacrifice to idols. Yeah, you talk to a student from Asia about food sacrifice to idols, that takes it takes on a whole other, like there's a whole lot more going on there than, you know, and so it's just that's just the importance of us having just, you know, doing theology together, doing biblical studies together so that we're actually mm-hmm. sort of, as you say, kind of getting all these different angles Yes, yeah, so let me give you an example for from pneumatology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so usually in the industrialized West, secularized West. Uh, so when I, I, I use the industrialized to to refer to uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, um, kind of a you know think European Union mm-hmm. uh, and then United States Canada, uh, but but the West includes Mexico and Latin America. Portugal, <laughs> mm. uh, that's part of the West too. Totally, but we we, we often don't, right. don't think about. It. That's why I use mm. industrialized West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so in pneumatology, usually if you go to, to a seminary in the United States, uh, when we talk about the issue of uh, the agency of of evil spirits, for example, we call it spiritual warfare, right? Mm. Uh, depending on which tradition you are, um, there's hesitancy 
the people are like, ah, I don't know if you have a, an extraordinary weird experience. Uh, well, of course, we have counselors, you have therapists uh, that can help you work through it, through things that are important. And yes, but everything, almost everything is uh, is approached with a clinical view first. And then, well, if there is no explanation, then we can say, well, it might be something spiritual. Mm, right. something that is beyond sensory something that is beyond empirical disciplines mm-hmm. and uh so for example uh there was a study that was done by an anthropologist robert priest comparing uh students from kenya and students uh in different seminaries in chicago and and they were asked have you ever experienced spiritual warfare in the seminary where you live in the seminary um overall like more than 80 percent of the students in chicago they were like nah Nah. i mean it's great it's great to be in a seminary i mean i love my room i (laughs) you know it's great i mean some of them were like yeah you know if they come from a pentecostal background then maybe maybe they have some experience in kenya the students from the seminary uh Mm. they were like yeah like 80 more than 80 percent of course Mm -hmm. all the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. Uh, they were asked, so have you or somebody that you know, have uh, have, have you encountered uh, or have the sensation that there is some kind of uh, spiritual force that is sort of tormenting you? Mm-hmm. 80%. Yeah. yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here, and right. here is like 80%. They were like, no, not really. I mean, I, I'm just stressed. Mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Uh, totally. Uh, so I'm not adjudicating uh you know, which one corresponds to the right theology, but we have similar pneumatologies that talk about the agency of the spirit, the Mm -hmm. non-embodied spiritual world, and its interactions with humanity Mm -hmm. in in completely almost opposite existential ways of perceiving it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hmm. It's contextual theology. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Wow. I took us on a whole rabbit trail of contextual theology, Nick. Down. Oh, that, I mean, it's really good. I, <laughs> I, I so. love talking. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a sociology background, so I love talking about cultural context and things that arise within the culture. So I, could, hey, I feel like I could keep going on this. Cultural anthropology. Oh, yeah. Okay, awesome. There we go. <laughs> Super interesting. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm -hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the, on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? 
That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Yeah. So, so Jules, why don't you talk to us a little bit about holistic mission? Um, you know, w- when did it arise? Why is it important for us for understanding of salvation? And it hasn't always been the way we think about mission necessarily. But do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah. Um, so I remember that in the first Lausanne Covenant uh, um, World Evangelist Evangelistic Conference Evangelism Conference. Uh, Rene Padilla, who was one of the founders of the Latin American mm-hmm. Theological Fellowship, stood up and uh, he said uh, that a new paradigm was emerging in the context of Latin American Protestants. And that, and that paradigm emerged in light of their conversations, someone debates between Roman Catholic liberation theologians. He says that we no longer hold to the dichotomy of the salvation of the spirit or the body. And he said, solistic mission is a mission that maintains the unity between justification by faith and the struggle of justice Mm -hmm. for justice between faith and work, between spiritual needs and material and physical needs and between the personal and the social dimensions of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we call it uh, mission integral, integral Mm -hmm. mission, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now, holistic mission is lingua franca. Everybody talks about holistic mm. mission. <laughs> but uh, it is a way to programmatically view the life of the church as engaging ministry that attends to the whole of human life. Mm-hmm. That is not only looking for the experience of having the conviction that somebody is uh, professing faith and that that person has eternal security uh, uh, via regeneration and has been saved mm. uh, in good evangelical language, but that there's something that God is doing in that person's whole life, and we as a community are engaged in it. Mm-hmm. That the hope of the gospel is not only eschatological, but historically transformative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, the difference between um, this uh, mode this this model of integral mission holistic mission and liberation theology uh, uh, Rene Padilla and others saw that with in, in mission integral in material holistic mission we still have that impulse of preaching the gospel for conversion mm, mm. for for repentance for 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 going to people who have not heard this gospel and between Protestants and Catholics in Latin, in the context of Latin America, there was a divergence because it was uh, by many uh, Roman Catholic theologians and pastors and, and priests, it was assumed that it was a baptized country, a baptized, I'm saying, I mean, uh, region, continent, yeah. that, we, that because Christendom was present, mm. therefore the gospel was present, mm. mm-hmm. and therefore people were devoted Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mission Integral, what did was to, it kept the, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, you know, so, 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 sola fide, sola Christus, soli deo gloria, sola uh, scriptura, 
uh, so, solo Christus, uh, so, sola gratia, um, and put it to work in a way that moved mission in both proclamation and work. Now, work was not a hook to get you to hear the gospel. And in contrast to the fundamentalist missions that were coming from the United States to Latin America, mm -hmm. where good works were seen as hooks uh, mm. to preach the real gospel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people related to the Latin American Theological Fellowship said, no, 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 no. We don't do good works at hooks. Mm. We, good works are the necessary logical implication mm -hmm. of preaching this gospel right. it right. is inherent look at james mm -hmm. is right there in the new testament mm -hmm. so um i think that when churches assume they don't have you don't have to assume this uh terminology right uh but when you view the mission of the local church when christians in their own vocations no matter what see themselves as co-participants in what God is doing in the world to transform all things in Christ, mm -hmm. then we see every dimension of human life, material, political, social, uh, artistic, aesthetic, moral, everything as grounds for redemption, mm -hmm. as, as something that God is rescuing and transforming. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want a ticket to heaven. Right. Uh, we want to enjoy what God is doing in the now mm -hmm. because it is an anticipation of what's going to happen in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. In some regards, the, the individualistic salvation piece is too narrow. It's, it's doesn't actually uh, bring the whole gospel of what Jesus meant to do into of how we're, how we're supposed to live, live our lives like flourishing for all. And uh, so, yeah, I love that. I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit practically what this looks like. I know you've done some work in collaboration with some churches in Latin America in regards to disaster relief. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that work, kind of the joys and the challenges in it as well. So, uh, uh, so I was a pastor for 15 years and then uh, um, um, from 2012 and through 2018, particularly I was a church planter in Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, with a team of, of, of beautiful people, uh, we started, uh, you know, gathering this church called La Travesia, and we wanted to to reach people where they were at, moving them into the depths of the gospel, but in a way that they felt that they were envoys wherever they were. Um, but you can only disciple theoretically so much. Mm. Puerto Rico has so many needs, and people will we were we were being present in the community, but all of a sudden, September 20th, 2017, uh, this massive Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, that center. Um, it was has been almost 100 years since uh, a phenomenon of this magnitude had hit the Caribbean. Uh, gush of winds of plus 200 miles per hour. Uh, destroy the island, destroy the island. Uh, um, people knew what was going on in the island, outside the island, and we didn't know what was going on inside because all the communication towers, 90% mm. of the communication towers were down. Uh, complete blackout. Um, in the, our church, um, we immediately moved to see how our members were. Uh, two days after the, the hurricane, um, we had some friends that had left Puerto Rico before the hurricane hit, 
and uh, we went into we, we were asking ourselves how do we how do we help how do we help people who are desperate looking for water uh, looking uh, for food nobody could get to the, to anywhere the, mm. the, the roads were blocked so we started getting the food out of pantries of houses of people who were who left the island before the hurricane and we started going to the community to give out food mm. um, then in a matter of uh, of a week or two we since I was a professor too, uh, we gathered uh, under the leadership of seven pastors. We gathered seven churches. Uh, we developed a strategy of uh, uh, re um, getting resources together in order to uh, go and feed and 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 give water and medicines to communities who were in dire needs. Yeah. Uh, we were receiving airplanes from the United States, flooded for us. Uh, because of communications via text with churches in the United States. Uh, we became emergency relief responders on the spot. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing. I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but we gather in a round table, these seven churches from different, from seven different denominations that we, we knew each other before, but we were, we didn't have the experience of collaborating and, we submitted to each other. Uh, we started sharing resources and money and leadership and cars, uh, going to the mountains to uh, get uh, help, generators, electric generators to hospitals. Um, we completed over 200 missions, uh, reached uh, uh, plenty of Puerto Rico. And, and, and I remember that we were, uh, since, since, we, since we were concentrated in the metro area of Puerto Rico, I knew some Pentecostal churches in the rural areas. So I would go to a Costco or to a Sam's Club. Mm -hmm. We would do a line of five hours to get in. The first few days, then we took to the manager and say, you should let us in and cut the line because we're gonna spend $10,000 today in order to bring food to the mountains. Uh, and those $10,000 were coming via electric, electronic donations of churches who did not know anything about us in the United mm -hmm. States and in Canada. Mm -hmm. wow. And uh, we started moving, developing a strategy as we go. A lot of mistakes, a lot of mm -hmm. victories. And then we would go to other churches who were in the mountains, van full, and say, you know your people. Take care of your own people. Mm -hmm. So we, we build up uh, basically a kind of a chain of churches helping churches. Mm -hmm. uh, we immediately started learning as we were doing that, how to do community-based asset development. Um, um, some of us got trained in it uh, to train other pastors. Mm. Um, then uh, when the airports opened, people from the United States and other places started coming to help us do that. Um, and then we, all of our churches develop a plan of how to make sustainable um, the kind of work that we were seeing in communities mm. so that we could help people in their houses, in their material needs, in their medical needs, et cetera. Um, and do that for the next few years, mm. not only not only after the hurricane passed. Today, uh, the seven churches, they're doing their own thing. They're mm. flourishing. They're planting other churches. The church that I was serving um, um, developed a branch. It's called Hunger Corps. And uh, we chose a very impoverished community uh, near the, the capital. Mm. And we made a five-year commitment with, with them. And uh, we have a team of... Uh, 
of a rolling rolling short-term mission teams that mm. come uh, serving the community. We hire from the from the community uh, people who are unemployed to work. Uh, some of the staff of Hunger Corp were actually recipients of help from churches, mm. and now they're working to mm. develop an advocacy in government, mm. uh, adv- advocacy in local the local mayors to to achieve what we need to achieve a holistic way. Mm. Of presenting the faith, where uh, when people talk about what's happening in, in that neighborhood, La Hormiga, it's like, well, Christians are living there and they're doing things and beautiful things are happening, and mm. and sick people are getting the help that they need, and it's not conditioned upon them going mm. to church, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's there's but but God is doing amazing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, we develop a strong network of churches that does that. That kind of work is done. Uh, for example, I've participated in churches in Chicago and in other mm. places and in Miami now also, in which uh, we have churches helping churches flourish. Um, oh. uh, in, so you have resource-rich churches helping churches that do not have necessarily all the resources, but they have lots of cultural intelligence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we, we cannot reach any, everyone right. uh, and in this, with the same effectiveness. No, yeah. We have to know our limits. Mm-hmm. But then I ask, who can do that? Mm-hmm. Will have resources to help them? Of course. Here, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we help? How can we support each other? So um, um, we definitely... So if you are a Christian leader, if you are a lay leader, if you're a pastor and you're hearing this, you're like, how do we do that? I mean, I have so many things to do. I don't have expertise in doing mm-hmm. that. You don't have to have expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to do an impact community and impact your community, think, okay, what are the kinds of relationships that we need to build? Mm-hmm. How are schools in my community? Are there uh, impoverished students and families that are struggling to keep their, their, their kids after school programs um, that can barely feed them? Are, is, is, are, are there food insecurity around it? I mean, mm-hmm. can we help in that? Okay, we don't have the structures, but then who is doing that work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Can we partner with them and then we can learn? And then, so, so there's so many practical ways in which we can uh, develop mm-hmm. either ministries or join people who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and in those relationships, the gospel just comes through and the credibility of Jesus totally. is augmented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your class that you're teaching in the, in the summer and yeah. at Regent and tell us we, when people have got a bit of a sense of it, but tell us a little bit about that and what are you looking forward to about teaching it? So I'm, I'm so excited uh, to teach this class. Uh, theology overview in the summer. And one one of the things I love most in this class is that we are considering how the Christian faith not only makes sense in a post-Christian sociocultural situation, but how it makes, uh, uh, how it gives existential satisfaction, how it can attend to some of our deepest needs and questions. Mm -hmm. And in this class, we're going to be exploring uh, the major Christian doctrines uh, the doctrine of God and the triune God and creation and what is humanity and what is what, what, what is wrong with us or what is good with us. Um, what is uh, what is the person? 
when we talk about the person and, and the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit and, and the community of believers and, and, the, and what are the things that we should hope for. And in each class, we are engaged in explication. We are engaged in discussion. We are engaged in application. Uh, so imagine that you're in a context in which we are, we are um, uh, deepening our knowledge and handle of some of the deepest Christian truths hmm. and saying, how is this relevant for my church today, for, for the Christian faith today? Uh, it's going to be dialogical. It's going to be fascinating. I can talk from, we're going to be talking from Augustine, church father, <laughs> all the way through why does Batman does not want to behave like the Joker? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we're going to go through wow. doctrine and ethics and political theology mm. and uh mission and christian faithfulness oh man oh. that sounds like a lot sounds, sounds good two really, weeks, really good. two weeks i mean yeah, one, two good. weeks we get yeah, you, totally. you know we're, we're, we're not playing <laughs> totally. we're not playing yeah exactly well one of the things we didn't touch on was your understanding of trinitarian christology and yeah. how that fits into salvation as liberation and so i imagine you'll touch on that in yes. your class as well so um yeah look forward to it uh, if I take it or if, if others take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, following one of my mentors, uh, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, he was my Dr. Vater, my dissertation uh, mm -hmm. supervisor. I adopted his uh, theodramatic model of theology to talk about a theodramatic Christology. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a way of viewing the person and the work of Christ always in articulating how he related to the Father and the Spirit throughout his life. Uh, and how that impacts the way in which we see salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, not only how we feel salvation, how mm -hmm. we see it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to be exploring that in this class. Awesome. Awesome. Jules, sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> um, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much yes. for your time. And we're really looking forward to having you here in later on in the summer. Yeah, I love it. Then. Hey, and, and you can, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, you know, Dr. Uh, Jules Martinez. Yeah. Uh, just put, you know, at Dr. Jules Martinez. <laughs> and you'll, you'll pop up. Uh, you know, I'll pop up. Uh, yeah. um, and, you know, I put random thoughts there, sometimes fun, sometimes useful, and sometimes just weird. But yeah, it's okay. Perfect. The best combination. <laughs> totally. It's kind of holistic, right? Like yes. that's holistic. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your time, Jules. Great to talk with you. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net. <laughs>